Futurized goes beneath the trends to track the underlying forces of disruption in technology, policy, business models, social dynamics, and the environment. I'm your host, Trun Arne Unheim, futurist and author. In episode uh, 66 of the podcast, the topic is the serendipity of social innovation. Our guest is Christian Bush, professor at New York University and author of The Serendipity Mindset. In this conversation, we talk about serendipity, the art and science of creating good luck, and how it is intimately related to future trends in social innovation. By learning to see the events, people, or objects that come to us as opportunities for change and for adjusting course, we have the potential to achieve breakthroughs. Christian, how are you today? Very good. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I am extremely excited to have you. I have your book. I just finished it. This is uh, one of the most exciting books that I have uh, read in a very long time, I must say. I'm not just saying that, but this was, uh, it was a thrilling experience. I read it in almost one take, but uh, I think it was two takes. <laughs> it's one of the... Well, so that was exciting. Christian, you are a professor at NYU and you teach at uh, London School of Economics as well. You direct uh, uh, an, a social innovation lab. You've done so many exciting things and you're part of so many uh, elite networks, yet you have a very interesting and a background that I actually now, because I've read your book, I know a lot about. And I wanted to ask you something about your background. Uh, I mean, first of all, you are very honest about your own, uh, not, I wouldn't say struggles, but just the, the way that your own path took you along, uh, you know, along a meandering uh, pathway. But if there is one thing, and I think I have the answer from your book, but I want to ask it to you anyway. If there is one thing that defined your interest in social innovation, what would that be? I think it was definitely an experience I had when I was 18. I had a kind of near-death experience, a car crash, and that put me on this intense search for meaning. I mean, before that, you know, I was this rebellious teenager who was kicked out of school, who had to repeat a year in high school, completely channeled managing, completely the wrong ways, probably, I would say today. Um, and then, you know, I had that car crash, and uh, it put me on this weird journey of asking myself, if I would have died, was it all worth it? Did I do anything meaningful? And so... I kind of had all these questions and I started reading Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning, which is all about how do you find meaning in the most difficult of circumstances? And so that really kind of propelled me to, to figure out what is it that I really feel is meaningful in, in my life. And I realized what I enjoy doing the most is connecting people, connecting ideas, essentially connecting the dots. And, and so that's led me into community building, then entrepreneurship, social entrepreneurship, and kind of the content around that. It's, it's so interesting. Um, and I wonder, and I wonder, uh, before we sort of get into serendipity, we get into social innovation and, and, and what all of that is. If you hadn't had that experience, do you think that you would have ended up here anyway? Or is it so hard to imagine? It's a great question. And actually, uh, one of the things I'm most excited about in the work around serendipity that we'll probably talk about later is that idea of what could have happened, right? What could have happened... Um, had I then not channeled my energy in the right ways, had I, you know, would I have gone in different ways? I mean, I'm a big believer in the power of those kind of moments that, that shape in a way, shape us and where we look at the world differently. I mean, I'm, 
you know, a big believer that there's so much potentiality out there that I would probably have ended up in a very different way. You know, I still might have ended up in entrepreneurship or social entrepreneurship, but probably in very different ways. And so I feel like I'm very grateful actually to that experience because it it kind of triggered some things that I feel um, are now, you know, making me also value life very differently. It's like the Steve Jobs idea of, you know, that death can be life's greatest motivator because you kind of, it, it shows you how quickly it can be over. So Christian, you have so many great anecdotes in the book, but the book is so much more than anecdotes. But what the reason I was asking you this question is that it is actually almost like a philosophical question, isn't it? Because if there is a path to life and if people kind of, you know, if there is a consistency to, to, to life, then you would sort of say, yes, you would have taken a different path. It would have taken you longer, but many people kind of end up where they deserve to end up. So I'm trying to understand whether the philosophy that you that that lies behind your book is one where you're saying no, it really is life is a choice and you choose a path and that's where you end up or is it more flexible than that? So yes, a conversation a, a strong experience can kind of unleash one direction but more or less people are on certain paths. I'm trying to understand what's your sort of philosophy of life in that in that regard. Because maybe for you, it's one thing. But I mean, if you were to say like the majority of people, are they on their own path? And they just sort of, they're just sort of trotting along this path. And then if they make a choice, they'll just go more in one direction. Or do you truly believe that we should look out for these moments that define our life? And if we don't find them, it's almost like life doesn't have meaning. <laughs> That's a great question because, I mean, a lot of what serendipity is about is, is obviously about making like accidents meaningful, but also creating meaningful accidents. And I think what's what's interesting there is I think that to your point, um, you know, I'm a big fan. I had a conversation yesterday, actually, and a couple of days ago as well with someone who's extremely religious. And uh, he asked, uh, she asked, what is the, you know, how does destiny uh, hang together with the idea of, of of you creating your own luck. And, and you know, essentially, I think the, the point we got to was to say, hey, look, at the end of the day, there might be some kind of idea of where you could be going, some kind of sense of direction, and that might be someone else who gives it to you or you yourself. But, like, you still got to buy a ticket. You still need to do something. You still need to act on some kind of moments. And so I'm a big fan of this idea that, yes, there might be some kind of trigger, right? In this case, the car accident, um, but to your point, it could have been anything else, right? It could have been falling in love with 22, and then that could have also taken on a, on a different path. But to your point, that's why I'm so excited about mindset, because I'm pretty convinced that at some point I would have anyways kind of reconfigured myself. It would have been some kind of experience that would have led it to some kind of, you know, channeling energy differently because the energy was there. But what I'm most afraid of is that a lot of times I think if people don't have those experiences early on in life, a lot of times we we, we never find that orientation, right? And, and, and so I'm actually working a lot also with people who, you know, grow up in environments where they never had maybe an experience that 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 kind of made them see where they could channel the energy. And so I think there's a lot around this question of how do we essentially develop a muscle for the unexpected, but also the sense of direction that helps us to really find that meaning, to your point, to really kind of develop a North Star that helps us. But, but I'm a big fan, you know, of, of, of not anymore believing that there's one key North Star that we, you know, have when we're 20 and then our whole life we do that. I think a lot of times people make that up after the fact, right? They, they tell their life in terms of one thing that seems to hang all together. But I'm more like a believer that there's like a big kind of 
potentiality out there. And then we essentially kind of have a certain sense of direction, um, but it could also be a curiosity or an interest or something else that helps us to connect dots along the way. You do use the word North Star in, in the book. Uh, where where does that sort of tradition come from, the, the, the idea of looking for a North Star? Is that, I mean, obviously it, it refers to sort of like ancient navigation, but um, so you're saying, yes, there is some sort of idea around the North Star, but it's not necessarily a fixed experience that you're looking for or a person or a mentor. It can be a little bit more flexible than that. And it doesn't have to be like one, just one point of reference. Exactly. It's, it's, it's more, more, more of a compass rather than like an exact strategy, right? In terms of, I mean, we just, to give you an example, we just finished a kind of interview series with uh, some of the world's leading CEOs where we tried to figure out, like we sat down with them and, you know, they all run big companies and they all want to somehow have more purpose in their companies. And essentially one thing that came out as a key pattern was that they're really good at saying, we know approximately where we're going. If we are MasterCard, we know approximately that we want to be about financial inclusion now because there's so many people who are disconnected from it and we have capabilities that can do that, but we don't know exactly all the time how to do it. And so it's that kind of thing that allows them for these unexpected moments that deliver you unexpected strategies and so on. And so I've seen that a lot with, with the people, you know, Paul Polman, take the, the former CEO of Unilever, like he would have that kind of desire to help people who can't help themselves and to channel resources of Unilever and others towards that goal. So if you would run across him and pitch him an idea that would be surprising to him, he would want to connect that to that. And if not, he would probably say no. And so it's that idea of that kind of like sense of direction being that a vision or a principle or a value or a curiosity helps us to connect towards something. But a lot of times we might not know that, right? I mean, I think especially, so a lot of my students, for example, you know, they, they're figuring it out and they, they develop that. And so that is beautiful because I think even a key curiosity can then help us to, to almost like rubber stamp forward and try to understand what it could be. And, and I think that's the beautiful thing about potentiality, that we could be so many people. Well, there, there are so many questions I have to this concept. I, 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 you know, I guess I didn't give you a, a chance to explain it, and I will in a second. But th this whole, just this whole notion that, um, that there's one thing that you keep, uh, that, that certain people are open to, uh, to the opportunities, uh, and others don't seem to be. But it, you're saying it's kind of a choice. But isn't it also personality some people just look down when other people look up well it's a great question and i think to give you one example maybe one experiment that can show that it can be both in a way both 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 of the things you just mentioned can be true almost at the same time in the sense that um so it was an experiment in the uk where they took someone who self-identifies as very lucky right so someone who says good things always happen to me and i'm a lucky person and someone who self-identifies as very unlucky so someone who says you know, bad things always happen to me. I'm always in accidents and everything else. And we all know these people in our lives, right? Some people who seem to be a bit luckier than others and others who seem to be a bit unluckier. And they might have exactly the same starting positions, right? So it's not the passive luck, like being born just into a good family or something, but it's just like people seem to do some things differently. And so they essentially, the research team tells them, walk down the street, go into the coffee shop, order a coffee and sit down, and then we'll have an interview. What they don't tell them is that there's hidden cameras across the street, there's a five pound note in front of the coffee shop and inside the coffee shop, the chair next to the counter is next to this extremely successful businessman who can make big ideas happen. 
Now, the lucky person walks down the street, sees the five-pound note, picks it up, goes inside the shop, orders the coffee, sits down, has a conversation with the businessman. They exchange business cards, potential opportunity coming out of it. We don't know that part. The unlucky person walks down the street, steps over the five-pound note, doesn't see it, goes inside the, the shop, orders the coffee, sits next to the businessman, the other person's left, um, you know, uh, uh, ignores the businessman, and that's that. At the end of the day, they ask both people, so how was your day today? And so the lucky person says, it was amazing. I made new friends. I found money in the streets and potential opportunity we don't know. The unlucky person just says, well, nothing really happens. And so if we distill this, right? Yes, there is an element, for example, this conversation with the businessman around extroversion, right? If we're more extrovert, we potentially create more opportunities of interactions and so-and-so. But we can talk more about that in a way. A lot of times serendipity comes from calm sources, right? Reading a book, seeing something in a window. It's, it's really about connecting dots also in, in quote-unquote silent ways. But then the second part, the openness to the unexpected and this idea that you expect that there can be something that can improve your life, that is already a huge way around how you frame life. And that's almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy that when you know that there are good things out there, you start seeing them more. And so that can be in every conversation that can be finding money in the street and all these different types of things. You know, I'm starting to realize that your principle here around serendipity, it it's not just about sort of like social and meaning. And you are obviously, you're applying it to two different things. I mean, one is social innovation, which is sort of is your field, but you're also applying it more plainly to business problems. But I'm wondering, I mean, isn't this the same principle that separates a, a creative academic from a boring academic or someone who is able to combine different fields? Uh, I've done some research now on polymaths, and I sort of happen to believe that, you know, uh, it used to be this field that we think of as like a very specialized or a very clever person is needed to know something about a lot of different fields. But it's actually very, very important in, you know, in society today that we all start to consider several topics. Because if we start trusting experts, we, we get down these rabbit holes. So, and it seems to me that your attitude of serendipity is something that could, I mean, is it, do you feel like it has enriched your own academic work, this awareness that you actually have to look for connections a little bit beyond the very obvious, you know, I'm reading five articles today, it, it better be in this article, but you know, you, 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 know, you, you have to open the aperture. Absolutely. And, and, you know, it's interesting because it reminds me also a lot of, so I do a lot of thesis supervision. So when master students or, or, or so like write their dissertation, their thesis, and usually when someone comes in the room, you can very quickly see who will most probably have a distinction and like an original thesis and someone who will be okay, but like they won't be kind of outstandingly great. And how do, of course you, I how do you see that? How do you see that? <laughs> And, and of course, I would never want to be biased, right? So I always yeah. give it still a very open mind and let them run with it. But so the, the, the person who will probably be okay, but not like extremely outstanding comes in and says, I think I have it all figured out. I have my literature. I have my methods. And here's this. Can I get your rubber stamp of approval? Great. Here's the stamp of approval. Run with it. The exceptional person comes in and says, oh, my God, I read into this literature and this and this and this. And like, I like this, but I wasn't really sure how I can bring this in here. And da, da, da. And this ambiguity, this kind of like creative tension, that really brings them to this exceptional originality. And to exactly your point, that is really where, you know, you can you can transfer this concept to everything in different areas. That's how Steve Jobs, like, you know, um, realized how he can build a lot of innovative things. That's how Leonardo da Vinci and others, you know, they observe things like birds and 
and and and and and and ants and other things to understand how you can build different types in society and you know our traffic systems are based on understanding ants and how they how they walk around so the point here is that the more we learn how to connect the dots and the more we learn to connect them across different areas the more creative you can get in academia in 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 everything that requires in a way this idea that you that you create something that is creative right and and that's actually philosophically speaking i know you you appreciate philosophy as much as as much as I do, um, that's almost Hegelian, right? That in a way you you need an antithesis to a thesis in order to get to the real synthesis because that is essentially that step up. And so I'm a big fan of that. I've seen it in my life as entrepreneur, as social entrepreneur, but also in academia, that this connecting dots across different areas is, is in a way what then kind of makes the step change. And that's where the really good paper happens. That's where the really good kind of output happens versus the kind of standardized stuff. Christian, I want to connect that to something that I feel was very important that you wrote in the book. And I think I concur with you. And it's a very controversial, I think it's kind of controversial. You said, uh, there's a downside to listening to mentors. And you, in your life, and I, I took it that you sort of have studied mentorship a little bit too, and kind of con concur with this notion that being a mentor is a very dangerous thing to imply to another person because you are almost certainly going to, if you're not careful, impose a version of what you would have done onto another person. So not only are you transferring your experience and, you know, if you're an academic advisor, you're transferring, you know, years and years of knowledge and having written five books instead of just having written a term paper, but you're also putting your prejudice into that judgment about whether a paper is a good idea, whether this career move is a good career move, uh, or, or whatever else, uh, you know, and a mentor might say, in my case, uh, I got so many people opining on this one startup concept that I, you know, we're working on. And I think a lot of the early opinions were really wrong. And they said things like, this, this, I've seen this before, it can't be done. I mean, what is that? So tell me a little bit about why you are a little skeptical to mentors and what that means in terms of serendipity. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm a big fan of, of separating. I completely relate to your mentorship experiences. I mean, I've had it in my own life, right, where I feel my worst decisions were usually where I over-trusted people giving me advice about areas where they didn't have the full context, where in a way, yes, it makes sense your advice from your perspective, but actually not necessarily in this particular context. And so um, I think that to me, like there's like uh, there, there's good mentorship and bad mentorship, right? I mean, to me, good mentorship is about question-led mentorship, which is all about saying the truth will be in you. Like John, do you, if you build a startup, you will have looked a lot into this. You will have tried to understand how that how the context works. So if I can ask you the right questions, then I can bring it out of you or I can motivate you to, to search for the right answer somewhere. And then I can still give you a couple of tips as well, but based on you, your exploration rather than on mine. And bad mentorship really being about, you tell me about a problem, I give you exactly the kind of advice how I would fix it exactly. And the problem here is that it's almost like a, if you would look at it as a neat solution matching, a lot of times like these kind of things are not going about going from A to B, right? Because it's much more complex than that. Like if, if it would just be from A to B, like everyone could have built your thing already uh, uh, like this, right? So it's, it's kind of societal things are more complex. And so I'm actually, to your point, the reason why I'm skeptical of a lot of mentors is because they, 
essentially try to abstract from their own experience and, and see it as something that they can just push on someone versus really do more of the Socratic kind of idea of saying, hey, look, um, you know, what is it that, um, that you've encountered as a key problem? What are you trying to solve? And then when you give me more detail, then I can still tell you, yes, like I've had X, Y, Z problem and that's how I solved it. And then you can say, great. It's almost like, you know, cherry picking. You say, great, this, this part of your advice I take, but this part I don't take. And that, that was my key learning that I think the reason why I, pr I appreciate more now working with, for example, a coach rather than a mentor-mentor is that the coach sees you more holistically, right? He sees you, Tron, as someone who has values, who has X, Y, Z, X, Y, Z, and he sees them over time or she sees them over time versus a mentor comes in at a particular point, gives you a particular advice, but doesn't really necessarily know the context. And so um, I think both can be super effective, but um, I think it's also more about the mentee saying, I pick the kind of advice that 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 makes sense. From a mentee perspective, I think it's even more important than right to, in a way, um, not filter based on do I like the advice or not, right? Which I guess most people do, um, which can be healthy if you really want to run with something. But I think more picking based on, okay, does this person really understand the context and, and so on and so on. I've seen that a lot in the social entrepreneurship context. You know, some of our work uh, in Kenya, we've realized that, for example, when you have large I don't want to name names, but when you have large organizations in the world whose role it is to kind of uplift people out of poverty, a lot of times they give grants to social enterprises and then they give them quote unquote tips. And if I'm a social entrepreneur in Kenya, I think, oh, this is such a big institution, so they will know, right? But actually, no, you know best about your context. That person in Washington, D.C., they have no real idea about your context. They, 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 they've never really probably been there. And so it's, it's really this idea of saying, Yes, it's great to take the advice, but not to be led by it. And so some of the failures that we've seen in our work actually came from people pushing advice on people and then building an asymmetry because of funding relationships, but actually not having a real clue of what's actually happening on the ground. And then social entrepreneurs trying to build a symmetry so that they can say, no, 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 we think we know a little bit better what's going on here locally. Christian, one of the things that were so inspiring in your book, apart from your brutal and brilliant honesty about your own shortcomings, which of course, coming from someone who then of course is also very successful, it's very powerful. But one of the things you do so well is you ask an enormous amount of good questions. How does one become a good questioner? That's a great question. And, <laughs> you know, I would almost give the question back because, I mean, I've, I've been a huge fan of, of trying to understand the Socratic dialogue and how Socrates did it because I I feel Socrates was a lot about trying to understand what are your assumptions? What is underlying? What is behind what you're telling me? Like if you're asking me something or if you're telling me about a problem, I mean, my favorite is always in a relationship, right? Let's say um, someone kind of comes and says, oh, like, I don't like you. You put your toothpaste again on the wrong side, right? And then Socrates would probably ask you, what is it about the toothpaste that really annoys you? And then he would probably realize, oh, wow, it's about that I don't feel respected. And then you can dive deeper into why do you not feel respected in general? And, you know, and so, so that's kind of like leads you into the why question. And so, um, you know, my feeling is that a lot of where I got the questioning from is Socrates and then also reading The Little Prince, which is, I'm a big fan of that book. Which yeah, you said you have it on your uh, desk every, yes. <laughs> every, every day. You have it beside your bed. Yeah, because it's, you know, I feel like that's the kind of sometimes people think you're naive when you ask why a lot. But actually, you know, I think asking why a lot of times helps us to understand the assumptions behind something. 
And you know, I've, I've, I've been doing that a lot with like people who assume that money is everything, right? And then you, you ask why, why, why? And then, you know, when you ask people about deathbed regrets, like nobody ever mentioned, I would have loved to make a bit more money, right? Like, or I would have loved to have been in more meetings to make money. Like, no, it's like, did I build meaningful relationships? Did I build X, Y, Z? And so I feel like the asking why also helps everyone a little bit, become a little bit more authentic and a little bit more like, like realizing, you know, who they really want to be versus what they tell us. Um, but also maybe just as a side note there, one thing I realized with myself, seeing it in my dad, is that sometimes we try to make sense out of things while we're speaking. And then we try to feel how it's how it sounds like when we speak. And so it's almost like you can't take it 150% of face value. You can take it 95% of face value, but you can always, it's still emergent, right? Because there's no one truth out there, right? There's always like kind of interpretation and everything. And so I think I'm also a big fan of this idea that let's try to understand what the person really wants to say versus what they were able to say in a particular moment, because nobody is perfect in terms of articulating everything so brilliantly that they actually really understand it deeply, um, especially when it comes to emotions. Right. Um, so I think it's, it's, yeah, when it comes to emotions, right, you might think something triggered something in you, but actually it might be something completely different. So again, I think it's really asking why a lot of times that, that leads us then to, to the real underlying cause rather than what we might think at the beginning it is. Christian, would you share with us how you came to write this book? Because you have a book for a, you know, on a random house imprint. It's it's very impressive from a, uh, you know, it's a big trade publisher and it's a wonderful opportunity, obviously. How how did you come to write this book? And, and what, t tell us about the process of writing this book. It, that's a, it's a lot of pressure to write a book that, you know, obviously the publisher hopes is going to become, you know, if not a bestseller, but it's going to be on everybody's, uh, you know, it's going to be at the airport. It's going to be everywhere. I mean, that's the assumption of a big publisher. Tell us about how you came upon that opportunity, and, but also how you are think, were thinking about writing it. Uh, how was the process like for you? Yeah, yeah. Well, it's interesting because it's it's there, there's there's two two answers to it. The one is is that you know throughout my life, like serendipity has been kind of in a way a life philosophy, um, but also like it popped up in the research in terms of the most purpose driven people, the most successful people. They intuitively cultivate serendipity, and so it was really about trying to understand what is it that essentially makes people see something in the unexpected and turn that into positive outcomes. So serendipity really being about um, these kind of unplanned moments that through your own active decisions lead to positive unexpected outcomes. And so that's very about us, how we how we do something. And so there's that kind of whole theme around how that has been always the case. And kind of I had been writing um, parts about it, but then I wanted to write a book originally about purpose and about meaningful impact and about, you know, like things. And then serendipity would have been a part of it, but like the big idea was around like search for meaning and purpose and all these kind of different areas. And then I remember going on holiday with a, with a friend's family. Yeah, you were and, in Bali, uh, I think. Uh, Myanmar, yes, yes, yes. Myanmar, uh, Myanmar. Yes, 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 yes. Sorry, that was another story. Uh, yeah, Myanmar, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> it always happens exactly in those kind of, uh, uh, you know, like like moments of, of tranquility, I guess, that, that those ideas come. But um, but I remember pitching the idea of the book um, to them and, and uh, you know, they, they looked at me and they were like, yeah, no, that sounds interesting. Uh, do you have other ideas as well? Uh, and so, uh, and so I was like, all right, the purpose idea seems to not really fly 100% for a book, um, especially for the for a bigger kind of audience. Um, so I was like, okay, great. 
something that I'm really, and you know, I was trying to reflect on what is it really that drives me and what is it really that brings everything together? And I realized, wow, it is serendipity. And so I, I was literally staying up the night and like trying to figure out like all the places where I had come across serendipity. And I realized like my whole life, like Sandbox, the community we set up, essentially was about accelerating serendipity. My own life has been like this. And on our research, it, it showed a little bit of this. And so it was really kind of, um, in a way, serendipitous that it emerged as a, as a book as well. Tell me how a random coffee chat can change people's life because, and can change the world. It sounds crazy that it's even possible to think that. But do you really believe that? And, and is that one of the take-home messages of this book, that you have to believe every time you go to a coffee meeting that this could change the world? I mean, I do, uh, I do remember somewhere in your book you're saying that even for you right now, you're very selective when it comes to taking the time to, to actually do, do, do a, a coffee meeting. And of course, with COVID, you know, this becomes a real serious moment. You're actually spending time face-to-face with someone. Tell us about, uh, I mean, it doesn't have to be a coffee chat, but let's take the coffee chat. What is it about the coffee chat that can be so transformative? And how should we make sure that it is? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, you know, it's interesting because so if I think back on my life, right, like essentially almost all of my romantic relationships, um, essentially all of my business ventures, like even Leaders on Purpose, which is a venture we set up that's about purpose-driven leadership, it comes from these kind of moments of, uh, you know, in a coffee shop. I mean, in my case, it's mostly uh, spilling coffee, right? Because I have slightly, as you might have seen, slightly erratic kind of movements. And so I tend to spill a lot of coffee. And so, um, I mean, imagine, and, and I'm sure like a lot of, uh, of you who are listening, you know, um, when you think back on the, on the moments where maybe you found the love of your life or your co-founder or your business partner, like a lot of times they, they happen unexpectedly, right? And so imagine the situation in a coffee shop where let's say you spill the coffee over someone next to you, you sense there might be some kind of connection, something might be there. And now you have two options, right? Option number one is you just say, I'm so sorry, you give a napkin and then you walk outside and you think, ah, what could have happened had I talked with this person, right? And then the other option, of course, is you say, I'm so sorry, I was thinking about XYZ idea. You could start a conversation and then, you know, it might end in, in co-founding something or else. And so if you think about, um, you know, up to 50% of innovations, social innovations, inventions, um, you know, everything from Viagra to um, uh, how Mahindra and Mahindra's kind of um, waste to energy things came about to how a lot of social innovations in developing countries come about. A lot of times it's kind of unexpected things where people do something with it and connect the dots. And that's why I'm so excited about serendipity because it's really about seeing something in the unexpected and then doing something with it. And that's actually what Viktor Frankl already said like a long time ago that he said, look, in our response to the unexpected, that's where our freedom lies, but also, you know, in a way that's where our serendipity lies. Tell me a little bit about social innovation. It's a field that has kind of rapidly emerged and it's connected to, you know, to, to a bunch of other important areas. I mean, first off, what, what is social innovation to you? And, and you know, give, give me a sense of where that sits right now. What, what, what is social innovation? Yeah. Well, to me, it's a lot about the question of how do we solve social problems in ways that are, you know, like, I mean, improve the way we, we tackle things. Innovation is kind of like improving how, how we go about things, are more effective, efficient, and so on about it. And so in a way, the question to me is like, what are ways of how we can tackle social problems 
in a way that is is really kind of not only efficient and effective, uh, but also really scalable. So something that is really uh, in a way, you know, um, 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 I don't want to over talk about Viktor Frankl, but in a way kind of when we will look back in 20 years from now, we will really be proud of the idea that, that we created something meaningful. And so um, if you think about, give you an example that, that I find very exciting about when it comes to social innovation, because a lot of times we might think about it's about big innovations, like a big like product innovation, like, I don't know, here's a healthcare solution for 5 billion people who that changes completely how healthcare works. Yeah, that's great. But in a way, a lot of times it's not about a product or a service necessarily, but it's actually about an organizational model and an approach and most importantly, a mindset. And to me, you know, one of my biggest learning when it comes to, to those kind of questions is that it's so much about the mindset of how we approach a, a problem and a social problem particularly. Because if we come in and we think it's about resources, it's about money, it's about just fixing some problem, then we create asymmetries, right? I will never forget. Um, so this, this example that I want to mention, Reconstructed Living Labs, the first time I visited them and their partners in, in different countries and contexts uh, before they were emerging, uh, essentially I asked uh, someone, uh, so what is the one thing I should never ask you, uh, me as the white kid coming into your context and, you know, probably having no idea what's locally happening. And so they said, well, never ask us what we need, because if you put as a first question, because if you ask that, you put us in the role of the victim, of the beneficiary, of someone who essentially relies on you to fix our problem. Um, versus if you come in and say, what can we do together? What is already here and how can we make the best out of it? Then we can collaborate and you can still bring resources, but it's really about um, this kind of symmetry be between us. And so what I found interesting in that context is that in their case, what they do is a low cost education methodology, you know, something like 10 steps to use social media to build your business and stuff like that. And the core here is that the innovation is not because it's a great methodology or something. That methodology, you know, I'm sure you find that everywhere in the world. But the innovation is around saying, how do we approach a context? How do we go into another local community and ask what is already here? Oh, there's an old garage. Fantastic. That could be a training center. There's a former drug dealer. Fantastic. That could be a wonderful teacher who will be resourceful and creative and has amazing social capital. And so in a way, they innovated by having a bottom-up approach that allows to scale a model like this to hundreds of thousands of people without any resources because it makes the best out of what is already there. And then what I find extremely exciting about it is that's where people create locally their own luck. That's when people feel empowered that they can actually connect dots themselves rather than waiting for someone who does it. And I think that shift away from powerlessness or feeling of powerlessness to actually creating your own luck, um, I feel that is a big one around um, how we can rethink development efforts away from it's about pushing resources to how do we have innovative bottom-up solutions that help us, um, you know, tackle these kind of questions. You know, it's fascinating. I haven't worked so much uh, uh, on development issues. I've worked a little bit on on social, uh, on health issues, global public health, but I have worked a lot on trying to understand innovation systems and it is a truism that everybody wants to recreate Silicon Valley, but it's literally true. And I've traveled around the world and talked to people who claim they don't want to recreate Silicon Valley. They want to make it you know, their own way. But in reality, a lot of these people end up really wishing that they could build something that looks a little bit like what they perceive to be a perfect innovation model. Can you... Uh, enlighten us a little bit on what's an alternative way of thinking about innovation, starting with the example you just gave. When it, either when it comes to building 
you know, scalable things, uh, even in the on the commercial side of things, well, because so often we simplify and we say, well, I want to create something just like that, and we take an example as a paradigm and we try to transpose it into another context, and. Time and again, we know that's not the right thing. So not only is it, you know, that you, you can't just bring your prejudice of, you know, I know best, but you also cannot assume that some other place can be transposed somewhere else. Yeah, absolutely. So what, it's just so difficult, though, when you don't have that alternative, what is your other alternative? Because you yeah. do want scale. Yeah. Well, and to your point, right? I mean, it, it's... What I've seen a lot from our work is that it's so much about a contextual understanding, no? In terms of saying, you know, if you uh, look at Silicon Valley, right? What is it about Silicon Valley? It's about that there's a lot of complementarities, right? Like you had the government at the beginning pushing a lot of money into it. You had uh, a great institution like a university. You had a great kind of, you know, initial companies that hired people. So you had a whole ecosystem of players where if you would have taken one away, the rest might not have worked out that way, right? And so it's, and, and I feel like a lot of times when people try to copy, they, 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 they copy individual things, right? So they copy, great, there's a great incubator, let's try to learn from Silicon Valley how to build an incubator, but it's not about that, right? Because it takes it out of the context of why it worked. Um, and most importantly, the culture, right? Because again, you can have all these pieces in place. You can have the greatest universities on earth. You can have the greatest incubators and everything else. If you have a culture that, for example, is against failure and against uh, making mistakes and everything else, then you will not have the same degree of entrepreneurship happening. And so I'm a big fan of, of really trying to understand these different layers, starting with culture and saying, what is the kind of culture? If you have innovation in Germany happening in a more risk-averse culture, it will be very incremental. It will be about process. It will be about like training people a lot and going about this versus Silicon Valley a little bit more. But you know what? The actual radical innovation happens in Kenya. It happens in India. It doesn't happen in, in Silicon Valley. And so it's kind of this, this interesting thing where I'm a big fan of, especially Silicon Savannah, like the, the Kenyan ecosystem. I've been doing a lot of work there. And, uh, you know, that's where something like mobile banking comes from or like something like microinsurance comes from Bangladesh. So really kind of institutional, big societal innovations come out of resource-constrained environments because people don't have to unlearn, right? If you don't have a, an ATM machine in your village, you don't think about how to improve the ATM machine, right? You, you think about how do I get money from A to B using my phone? And so in a way, you, you, can, you, you don't have to think outside the box because there is no box. And, and so I feel like that's kind of like the thing where in a lot of times, uh, you know, because we get trained in certain ways. In, in my case, for example, I got educated out of creativity, as Ken Robinson would say, versus in other countries out of necessity, you have to be very creative. And so I think there's a lot in there. But long story short to your question, I feel like if we want to copy these kind of things, it's really about understanding the whole complementary among these different aspects rather than just picking one. But also to your point, like really, really understanding how can we make the best out of what we are good at here? And that was the Reconstructing Living Labs example, right? Where we say, if this is a context where you don't have resources, then it's not about thinking about how we can build the best university from scratch. It's about saying, how can I use existing people, existing resources in a way that kind of makes something happen that can be innovative, but isn't about that kind of aspect of it. So really making the best out of what is at hand, rather than trying to build something from scratch that doesn't fit the culture. And I've seen so many organizations fail that try to bring in new systems and processes and new technology. And you're like, yeah, but if it doesn't fit local customs and traditions, it won't work. And so it's really uh, going deeper into that cultural aspect uh, that I feel is really important. 
Christian, I, I wanted to ask you about another thing. And I, I feel again that there are so many things where I, you know, you and I don't know each other very well. We've had a, a prep call, but there are other, uh, there are things that almost seem like we have uh, known each other for a long time. Because when I read what you wrote about failure and, and what you write about your own failures, um, it echoes some things that I have been writing about regarding failure. Because if you think about the American model of failure, Right in the business literature, uh, in the innovation literature, you know, fail fast, fail a lot. We fail, and this goes back to kind of the Silicon Valley model, right? To, you know, in a startup, it's not a problem to fail, but you have to fail and learn fast. But I'm sort of wondering, you know, you're European. The the European model of many things is sort of like fail slowly, and 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 really really understand what happened, and then make your move. And, and I feel like some of the anecdotes from your life and some of the, even the serendipity anecdotes, they are not these kind of American success story serendipities. They are not just, oh, I met a movie star at a set and, you know, and then my life was uh, wonderful. They are actually challenging moments. Tell me about the role of true and deep and utter failure or lack of luck or, or actually adversity versus sort of this easy serendipity that I think a lot of people misunderstand if they don't read your book and they just think, oh, serendipity, I have to just look for things and they will all happen for me. Yeah. Well, it's a great point because it's so much about how serendipity has usually a lot of uh, a long incubation time, right? That we might have a conversation today and then in 10 years, based on something, I might connect the dots and say, oh my God, Trant has this business, so I should put you, put you in touch with something. And to your point, one of the key themes that we've seen in our research in general when it comes to serendipity is that when we look at serendipity as a process of some kind of trigger happening, so that moment happening in a, in a Starbucks, you know, I mean, I had a conversation a couple of days ago with the, um, the, the gentleman who set up the Big Ideas Club or the next Big Ideas Club, which is the club that's Malcolm Gladwell and, and Daniel Pink and others, like they select really interesting books. And so that gentleman, uh, he, he told his story how he was sitting in a coffee shop and Gladwell was sitting next to him. And to your point, it's not only about sitting there, right? It's about like he first, like that was the trigger, right? Okay, he's sitting there, but now he had to overcome his kind of like, you know, the, the, the I think the sense we all have of like, oh no, is that the right moment? Does that really work? And so on, so on, so on. So he overcame it. He talked with him, but then, you know, he had to pitch it, but then he had to work a long time to actually develop something on top of it and, and develop it into an actual organization where he would really join him. And I think that is to your point, right? The initial moment, the initial encounter is great and, and that's important, but the actual work a lot of times is 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 kind of going through a lot of motions and, and the tenacity that comes with it. And, you know, in my case, for example, I remember when we set up a Sandbox Network, which which... Uh, is an organization that identifies young people around the world who make ideas happen. Um, we set it up originally as a conference and then the financial crisis happened and all sponsors were jumping ship. And, you know, that was like a trigger where we first thought, oh my God, that's really bad luck. Like this is the end of it. But actually it forced us to completely rethink the model and to think about, okay, maybe we can make it more bottom up. Maybe we can start by first hosting locally in different cities and do a lot of that and then after a couple of years, host a big conference where people really know each other. And nowadays, when looking back, one of the reasons why the community is so close in it is because people had the opportunity to first meet deeply locally. And so in that case, right, in the, in the short run, it seemed like bad luck. 
But that bad luck actually turned into really good luck through like pushing through things and really trying to go through. And that's something I've seen with a lot of people who had serendipity happen at scale in a way or or for, for bigger projects or things that in a way it required quite a bit of tenacity for from some people to to say, look, like this is how how it really unfolds. And I think a lot of times we we only see that kind of moment of, yes, he sat next to Malcolm Gladwell or yes, he I don't know, in the Cape Flats, uh, he had XYZ uh, a book that he read and then he made a company out of it. But but there was a long time behind it that actually then turned it into something probably. Hmm. Interesting. My, uh, my last question, and I hope it's not going to be my last question. I hope we can talk about this again. But in, in this round, I, I just wanted to think about how you think about the future because social innovation and serendipity, they at least serendipity, the way you describe it, it has kind of, it's a timeless thing. But on the other hand, when you put a name to it, you do change history, right? When you, when, you know, if your book becomes read by a lot of people, you can perhaps tip the world towards the perspective that they should be looking out more for the opportunities around them. Um, and similarly, the field of social innovation, right? It's not an old field, but how do you see that field progressing? I feel you hit the nail on the head in terms of that those two, to me, are extremely connected in the sense that I feel the future of social innovation is around working on mindset. It's working on mindset of funders, of support organizations like incubators, of, of entrepreneurs, of social entrepreneurs, around this idea that in a way, in a world that's so fast changing, it's not about building exact programs that have exactly everything figured out and exact content and exact this and this and exact funding models, but it's about understanding of, of how can we build that muscle that turns uncertainty from a threat into an ally. And so that is really why I'm so excited about this, this serendipity mindset, because it's so much about saying, at the end of the day, when you grow up, wherever you grow up, right? A lot of us get instilled this idea, you have to plan things out and you have to make it all happen. And if you don't, especially as a social entrepreneur, so you're a failure. But actually at the end of the day, this kind of ability to say, I have a certain sense of direction. I, I know approximately where I'm going, but my openness to the unexpected is a great thing. It's a great thing. It's not a loss of control, but it's actually the ability to see something in the unexpected. And I've seen that so much with like social entrepreneurs, for example, who go to funders, right? When they write their end of year reports, right? They have to pretend that it was all planned exactly this way and X, Y, Z, because that gives people the feeling that they had it all figured out. Versus, and, and one of my big hopes to your point is to say, if we give people an active language, that actually cultivating serendipity is not about loss of control, quite the opposite. It's about the ability to create a culture and a mindset that allows us to have a lot of innovation and social innovation happen because we're open to it. Then actually we also, you know, allow people to be more authentic, to be more truthful and to really learn from each other because a lot of things, you know, we, we tend to airbrush serendipity out of our history, uh, but actually it is there all the time anyways. And so we might as well talk about it. And so um, I hope that, you know, the next 10, 20 years are a lot about having the serendipity mindset in schools and high schools, in social entrepreneurship programs and so on. But also then when it comes to social innovation, really this appreciation that it's about giving people dignity locally to create their own luck rather than like trying to create that luck for them and taking that dignity away. And I think that is a lot about this kind of more like face-to-face, eye-to-eye kind of collaboration rather than like trying to, to fix problems, which as you know, a lot of development things over the last years were extreme failures because people 
you know, had the savior syndrome where they went in, but actually um, they, they destroyed more than they did well. And so I think it's really about this, this ability to understand the local context and then work making the best out of what's there. And based on that, then kind of, uh, you know, developing the rest. Christian, you make me optimistic towards the future because what you're saying is possible for people without resources. It's an attitude to life, right? It's something that's theoretically accessible to anyone. And that's a good thing. And that's, I mean, to exactly your point, Trent, I feel like that's, that and then that going hand in hand with real policy shifts and and that idea, right, that in a way, yes, the serendipity base level for someone in the Cape Flats and Cape Town is very different from our serendipity base level in terms of the access we have to networks and other things. And so I feel like like in parallel to the mindset development, it's working on societal inequalities. It's working on making sure that people have that opportunity space wherever they are in the world. And that's what I feel so excited about, um, that, that we can be part of creating that kind of social opportunity space. I think you're right about that. Uh, and I'm excited, and I now see why people are calling you, uh, you know, top 30 management thinkers. It's these perspectives, they, they are a little counterintuitive, and they seem almost too simple to be true. But I think unlocking true change, you, you are close to something here. I, I look forward to reading more and getting to know more, uh, you know, of your thinking, Christian. Thank you for spending a little time with us today. Thank you so much, Sean, and thank you so much for, for the deep, thoughtful questions. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you. You're very uh, gracious. Thanks a lot, Christian. You had just listened to episode 66 of the Futurized podcast with host Trunar Neunheim, futurist and author. The topic was the serendipity of social innovation. Our guest was Christian Bush, professor at New York University and author of The Serendipity Mindset. In this conversation, we talk about serendipity, the art and science of creating good luck, and how it is intimately related to future trends in social innovation. By learning to see the events, people, or objects that come to us as opportunities for change and for adjusting course, we have the potential to achieve breakthroughs. My takeaway is that the serendipity is more than chance and isn't really magical at all. We can all experience serendipitous encounters. We just have to learn to look out for them. That is, unless we are attuned to such opportunities already. The real question is how to systematize it so that the whole populations can benefit from the social innovations that typically ensue. For that, you might have to delve deeper into the serendipity mindset. Thanks for listening. If you liked the show, subscribe at futurize.co or in your preferred podcast player and rate us with five stars. Futurized, preparing you to deal with disruption.